This is Stella Dore with Top Shelf Burlesque, and you're listening to the Earth Hotel Podcast. Stay tuned. Often the solitary one finds grace for himself, the mercy of the Lord. Although he, sorry-hearted, must for a long time move by hand along the waterways, along the ice-cold sea, tread the paths of exile. Events always go as they must. So spoke the wanderer, mindful of hardships, of fierce slaughters and the downfall of kinsmen. Often, or always, I have alone to speak of my trouble, each morning before dawn. There is none now living to whom I dare clearly speak of my innermost thoughts. I know it truly, that it is in men a noble custom that one should keep secure his spirit chest, guard his treasure chamber, think as he wishes. The weary spirit cannot withstand fate, nor does a rough or sorrowful mind do any good. Thus those eager for glory often keep secure dreary thoughts in their breast. So I, often wretched and sorrowful, bereft of my homeland, far from noble kinsmen, have had to bind in fetters my inmost thoughts. Since long years ago I hid my lord in the darkness of the earth, and I, wretched from there, traveled most sorrowfully over the frozen waves, sought, sad, at the lack of a hall, a giver of treasure, where I, far or near, might find one in the mead hall who knew my people, or wished to console the friendless one, me, entertained with delights. He who has tried it knows how cruel is sorrow as a companion to the one who has few beloved friends. The path of exile holds him, not at all twisted gold, a frozen spirit, not the bounty of the earth. He remembers hall warriors and the giving of treasure, how in youth his lord accustomed him to the feasting. All the joy has died, and so he knows it he who must forego for a long time the counsels of his beloved Lord. Then sorrow and sleep both together often tie up the wretched solitary one. He thinks in his mind that he embraces and kisses his Lord, and on his knees lays his hands and his head. Just as at times before, in days gone by, he enjoyed the gift seat. Then the friendless man wakes up again. He sees before him fallow waves, seabirds bathing, preening their feathers, frost and snowfall mixed with hail. Then are the heavier, the wounds of the heart, grievous for longing after the Lord. Sorrow is renewed when the mind surveys the memory of kinsmen. He greets them joyfully, eagerly scans the companions of men. They always swim away. The spirits of seafarers never bring back their much in way of known speech. Care is renewed for the one who must send very often over the binding of the waves a weary heart. Indeed, I cannot think why my spirit does not darken when I ponder on the whole life of men throughout the world, how they suddenly left the floor of the proud things of this middle earth a bit each day, droops and decays. Therefore, man cannot call himself wise before he has a share of years in the world. A wise man must be patient. He must never be too impulsive, nor too hasty of speech, nor too weak a warrior, nor too reckless, nor too fearful, nor too cheerful, nor too greedy for goods, nor ever too eager for boasts. Before he sees clearly, a man must wait when he speaks oaths, 
until the proud-hearted one sees clearly whether the heart of his intent will turn. A wise hero must realize how terrible it will be when all the wealth of the world lies waste, as now in various places throughout this middle earth walls stand, blown by the wind, covered with frost, storm-swept the buildings, the halls decay, their lords lie deprived of joy. The whole troop has fallen, the proud ones by the wall. War took off some, carried them on their way. One the bird took off across the deep sea. One the gray wolf shared one with death. One the dreary-faced man buried in a grave. And so he destroyed the city. He the creator of men until deprived of the noise of the citizens. The ancient work of giants stood empty. He who thought wisely on this foundation and pondered deeply on this dark life, wise in spirit, remembered often from afar many conflicts, and spoke these words. Where is the horse gone? Where the rider? Where the giver of treasure? Where are the seats at the feast? Where are the revels in the hall? Alas for the bright cup. Alas for the mailed warrior. Alas for the splendor of the prince. How that time has passed away, dark under the cover of night as if it had never been. Now there stands in the trace of the beloved troop a wall, wondrously high, wound round with serpents. The warriors taken off by the glory of the spears, the weapons greedy for slaughter, the famous fate, and storms beat these rocky cliffs, falling frost fetters the earth. The harboring of winter, the dark comes. Night shadows deepen. From the north there comes a rough hailstorm and malice against men. All is troublesome in this earthly kingdom. The turn of events changes the world under the heavens. Here, money is fleeting. Friend is fleeting. Here, man is fleeting. Here, kinsman is fleeting. All the foundations of this world turn to waste. So spake the wise man in his mind, where he sat apart in council, good is he who keeps his faith. And a warrior must never speak his grief of his breast too quickly, unless he already knows the remedy. A hero must act with courage. It is better for the one that seeks mercy, consolation from the Father in the heavens, where for us all permanence rests. You are listening to The Earth Hotel. Welcome back to the Earth Hotel. I am Jackie Cotillard, your dependent commentator elaborating before the confine. We're an amateur outfit that humors and waddled cash. We've got a crossword that camps with the fly incompetence. Outside, a raining boundary is overflowing with a degraded fluid of some kind. The anagram we've constructed apologizes on top of the 15 truths as the infant forecast hurts outside an assigned street. Boy, do we have a show for you. That whooshing sound you hear behind me is uh, a large quantity of my, uh, of my collected works flying out the window and being devoured by the uh, digital compactor that I've worked myself into. Uh, very shortly in the past few weeks I've I found a lot of my uh, uh, equipment malfunctioning and in the process of replacing it and restoring it and backing it up and doubly backing it up and triply backing it up so I never lose it again 
I failed to put out a podcast for quite some time because my uh, computer was completely unable of processing anything uh, beyond a simple command. So those things are behind us. Those days are over now, and I'm bringing you a show hopefully worthy of the break. And I think at this point I'm going to reset the schedule a little bit so I'm taking the last week of every month off, and if not, uh, I'm uh, going to remove one show per month from the schedule, because if I'm putting out a mini-sode every Tuesday and a full episode on Friday, then I'm really doing eight shows a month. So I'm going to do six. So hopefully I can bring swell containers of art information to you, but I want to do that in a timely manner. So now that this equipment bombast and infamy is behind me, we're going to bring you programs that you enjoy. So we're going to catch up the schedule after this with uh, a three-part Zircon uh, a flagpole sitter episode, the Scott Walker analysis that I've been planning. It's a massive episode, and I'm going to break it up into three parts for easier digestion, and those will come out as mini-sodes over the next uh, month or so on Tuesdays, as we've got four other shows on the network that are coming out within uh, within a month from now. Whose Turn Is It is already on and, and working properly. Beers and Broads is swilling and... and sipping and whatnot, as it should, and we've been having uh, good success with those, and fun shows uh, recorded for those programs. I came here for an argument based off of the Facebook group of Some Infamy in Birmingham is a podcast centered on discussing opinions, having opinions and explaining them and hearing them from other people in a constructive way. I came here for an argument debuts on the 17th, we'll be doing a swap cast. I went on their first episode. Uh, to talk about free speech and kind of what their show is about, so that you'll hear that as an Earth Hotel episode on March 17th, and it will also uh, release as their first episode. And then weekly on uh, on Saturdays, you will hear them. I came here for an argument. David Smith from the band Witch's Wall and, uh, and his cousin Dylan are conspiring to bring some discussion to the table. In the same vein, DNR, a rom-com post-mortem, is a show by Wes Franks and my friend Jordan Vickerson. Wes is from... Uh, the Whose Turn Is It podcast, and Jordan, you know from the Dizzy uh, and uh, and multiple things on this show, creating some some kind of, uh, of substantial analysis of romantic comedies, which I was uh, I was skeptical at first, but I'm I'm understanding more and more. Do they work? Are are they dead? Is it dead as a genre? Can we learn anything? Are we insufferable and inscrutably doomed because of uh, the lies that we've been fed because of romantic comedies? find out. It's, uh, it's DNR. Spoilers. Yeah, so all those things are coming up in, in March, in the spring, on March 17th for, uh, for I Came Here for an Argument, and later on this month, or maybe early in April for DNR. We're working on some kinks in the final thing, and we're just going to drop it on you without any notice. Stay tuned at earthhotel.org. We're going to have site updates happening very shortly, in which we bring the clarity to your face via a tiny uh, platform that you hold in your hand. Just like you like to do. Very well. Confessions have been made. Penance will be performed as you listen to this somewhere. I am flagellating something uh, around myself. But after the bleeding, I can rest easy knowing that somewhere uh, you are enjoying equally uh, the amount of, of art pleasure that I am receiving in art pain on my end of the bargain. Our guest this week is an old friend of mine from my handful of collegiate days, and she has conspired with her people to sprout up a quarterly literary magazine for Southern queer writers. She's an educator, a literate charmer, and a speaker of languages. Creatures out there, Alicia Dawson, editor-in-chief of Screen Door Review. 
now we're here and now it's talking. <laughs> It'll be fine. All right, and sounds good. The fine details dialed yeah. in and whatnot. So catch me up what you've been doing since Montevallo. Um, like you, like I, I know, but how have how have things gone? What is it like now that you're now that you're out? Out, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess it's just been kind of it's been interesting the transition between like academia um, and office work is weird um the chairs are more comfortable and uh doesn't smell the same it definitely doesn't smell the same no this is different office jobs apparently smell like the corridor of your high school yes cleaning products yeah and fear yeah and weird carpet Mm -hmm. but the carpet's on the cubicles now and that's just weird but i have a window seat so like a window seat sounds like an airplane i have like it's a ginormous building I work in now, and so I i mean, I have the best seat in the house on the fourth floor, and there's it's like a wooded area, so I'm right by the windows, and the walls are just full windows, so it's actually pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, transitioning is was weird. I've been at this job for two years now, so, but it allows me to be like financially stable during the day, or all the time, office at, office during the day, and then, you know edit slash write by night um but yeah it's it's fine it's okay it's yeah, good and it's i'm developing I, it's developing and i'm relatively happy right now which is great because i can buy groceries and stuff <laughs> um which you know i liked teaching i liked being a a part-time professor no, I liked being a professor. I don't think I liked being a part-time professor um, because they pay you less than Arby's. Yeah. Mm. So that's a thing. Were you um, were you an adjunct or were you just not? Okay. Yeah, I was an adjunct. Gotcha. Um, I was like, so the first two years or the first year and a half, I was just teaching at Montevallo. And then the first, then after that, I started teaching at UAB as well. So I was teaching three classes at Montevallo and two classes at UAB. Um, and driving back and forth and yeah, those wages, man, were rough. So had to figure out something else. And then I decided I didn't want to do a PhD because I just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I was like, well, then why do I want to like, I don't need to keep doing this if I'm not going to be PhDing, you know? So that's an active verb. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a super active verb from what I've been told. Um, but no, I'm super... I'm I'm really glad that I decided not to go that route. I think it's... I think I could, and I could have, and I think I still could eventually if I wanted to, like later in my old age, if I make it to old age, then that could be something to do in, in like, a free time. <laughs> but in terms of, like job right now like I just would much rather I don't know it's funny how things change and I feel like I sort of found my little niche and in terms of like editing and that like because it fits so many of the things that I was kind of trying to get at but didn't know I was trying to get at yeah well I think if you if you do return I think the university system might have adapted more to do what you were aiming to do that's true too yeah um and I was confused with what I wanted to do. I mean, I have a, my master's is in specifically medieval literature, um, was the focus. And I love that. And I'm super obsessed with it still. 
and love thinking about it and even writing about it occasionally now, but, um, it's, I don't know, it's transitioned into more of a something I enjoy, but I don't really feel called to like, uh, make a career out of, um, it may take a different form, you know, yeah. cause, yeah. cause that's the, that's kind of the obvious problem that I see with do the degree kind of system is that you're, you're given to a specialty that actually is a broad range of skills that are applied to mm. one thing that you're, con- you're under basically under contract to specialize in. Yeah. And it does, it really does lend itself to be you being trained in various fields and various ways of thinking and various capabilities, you know, like, um, I, you know, I don't just know how to talk about medieval stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God, God, that would be horribly boring. <laughs> not that the, not that medieval stuff is boring, but just like, could you imagine if that's the only thing someone knew how to talk about? No, but obviously that's not how it goes. And you learn a whole lot. And I think those skills and those, even those passions and everything, it translates over to uh, whatever it is that you decide to do next because your passion goes with it and it doesn't die and it just transforms. So yeah, it's, it's been interesting and it's been fun looking back on it. It's yeah. been fun. And obviously I really liked teaching and I wouldn't change it at all that I did it and I wouldn't change my degree and I wouldn't change anything really because of where it took me. And especially cause I, you know, I did my master's at a place I really loved and, then came back and got to teach at a place I really loved, you know? And so it all, and I made so many good connections and everything. And I think just one thing kind of feeds into the next, into the next. And I feel like the last two years, it's been very easy uh, to see how, like some transitions are just less visible than others, I think. And this transition was just a little bit more visible. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes they're mutations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I appreciate it. And I've, yeah, I've spent so much time thinking like, okay, so where am I, what am I, what am I doing with all my English skills, my lit skills and my gayness and my, (laughs) and my Southerness and my this and that and the other. (laughs) I remember, uh, the first day of class, uh, somebody, I can't remember how it came up, but you were just like, yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty gay. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's uh, all right. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I think that, God, you know, and it's weird too, because you go into a class like that as a woman and teaching as well. I was already like really young and a woman and might, people may not think twice about that if you haven't experienced it, but being a woman as a teacher and being a young woman as a teacher is really, especially when you're teaching people who don't look that much younger than you or, you know, yeah. um, it can be intimidating, but it can, I've, I mean, I had people, I would walk into class first day and they're like, someone just would straight up like kind of yell like, oh my God, how old are you? Like, like Jesus, give me, a, give me a second. Yeah. <laughs> like rude. Um, or, or guys will like straight up hit on you just mm-hmm. like. I mean, I guess women would, I've just never had it happen that a woman did that to me. I, I'm, you know, I assume it's possible. It just seemed, you know, uh, just guys just straight up, just 
fucking hit on you you know mm. <laughs> like i'm a tea time <laughs> so it's weird um so you kind of have to figure out a way to like address people and and, I, and so i had already been like hit on by a couple guys when i was teaching and so i was like i'm just gonna out with it that i'm gay straight from the gate because maybe that'll help <laughs> a little yeah just work it in organically and then we'll just get uh, achieve what you want it to achieve yeah and we can all move on yeah i did have yeah. a guy take off his shirt in class once for me to show me his body literally that was the only reason well uh were there words before that or was it just there were there were a few words just a few and uh first day of class or just no or actually like mm, four weeks in hmm. and the words he said were memorable not just for their content but because i'd never heard him speak before ever ooh, he was ooh. one of those guys that wore ball cap and just like kept it down mm. kind of over his eyes he looked deep he looked very like just sweet and quiet and shy that's what they say about all those go on <laughs> and and so i was just like man it's gonna be really interesting when he has to do like his little speaking presentation part like what's this little guy gonna you know. say well and so it's not even his day to present yet right but but it was apparently his day to present um and yeah so never heard him talk before at, at all and he just right before class was about to start like we were all there we were getting quieted down to start he stands up and well no first he says miss dawson can i show you something oh god literally he said that exact thing and i'm just like is it a gun? What is harm it a penis? could come? Yes, is it? It's one or the other, either a gun or a penis. Is it stigmata? Perhaps? And I am scared of a gun. And in a classroom, I would just, I would not know what to do if he, if someone whipped their penis out in class, I would not know what to do with that. The word eek comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> eek. 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 Like a mouse. Yeah. And well, and so I have red hair, right? And I have pale skin and I'm a you know ginger and I blush really easily which is embarrassing because and then you realize you're blushing and then you blush more because you're embarrassed that you're blushing and it's just this horrible red cycle and then you're aware um, of your insides when you're in a social setting which is even worse yeah oh it's just oh so so yeah he says can I show you and I was like sure <laughs> Great. Sure. Yeah. And so he just stands up and he, I mean, he's well built, is tall, whatever, I don't know. And, uh, and he takes off his shirt and turns around and says, Miss Dawson, look, I've got this wicked sunburn. And first of all, if you're going to take off your shirt in my class to show me a sunburn, you better have like skin peeling off your back, yeah. like, it looks like somebody drug, like, you know, like dragged some yeah. cat nails across you. You better bring me some flayed by some demon sunburn. Flayed by demon sunburn yeah. was prefer would so have been preferable. Was yes. his game weak as fuck? I couldn't even see it. Like, <laughs> it was barely pink, if anything. And it was on the very top of his shoulder, which meant he could have just moved his shirt a little. It was a baggy t-shirt. But for whatever reason, he thought that was his in-in game. You know, like, mm -hmm. this is how I'm gonna whatever his whatever he was trying to accomplish i don't know um and so i i i immediately start blushing horribly look straight down at the whatever papers were in front of me and i 
you know, and I think that sometimes I can be good with words. This was not one of those times. You look, it's one of those times where you look back and you think of a million things you could say to him, like, that's very disrespectful. You, you can't, you can't just do that in class. You know, you're making it awkward for everyone. You know, so many things that you could have said. And I just look straight down and I say, yeah, it's weird weather we've been having lately. <laughs> that's it. That's what, that was my, that was my comeback. Uh, hmm. And everybody in the class was just like, really embarrassed for him, for me, uh, which I appreciated. Um, but yeah, and then one girl in the class was just like, did that just happen? Said it out loud. So that made it even more awkward, but actually I appreciated it to, to feel validated in my feeling awkward, you know? Um, anyway, yeah. So yeah. there's just weird moments That's like what they that, won't tell you about. That they won't tell you about being a professor. But yeah, so being a woman professor, especially, you know. So yeah, you got to say things like, hey, I'm gay. Um, <clears throat> just uh, to, to start. And it was, it was charming. It was great. It was, a, it was an elegant solution. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so I, I did some cool work while I was in your class, mm. and that was just about the only productive work that I did in all of college, <laughs> which I appreciate. Um, and I've, I've used some of that stuff since, uh, since then, so I want to thank you for that. Well, yeah, no, I'm so glad, and thank you. I've actually told several people about that work, so. Oh, Yeah. Well, thanks. It stuck in my... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> Wine Throat. went down the wrong way. <laughs> <clears throat> no, um, no, yeah, I've definitely talked to people about that because I think we have friends in common, but you've come up in conversation other times when, in, um, with people that you don't know and that don't know you. And I was like, yeah, they're not in college anymore, but I'm actually kind of glad because it didn't really like, I was not a good student. <clears throat> no. And it wasn't that. And I was glad that you were in my class classes. You yeah. were in two of them, right? Yes. I was glad you were in my classes, and I'm sure the other teachers were glad you were in their, uh, theirs as well. But I, but I only say that because you didn't seem like you you meant, you said that it didn't really fit you, um, the whole academic thing. Mm -hmm. So I was glad that you followed your gut and did what you what you thought felt right for you. Um, well, thanks. Yeah, no, I mean I'm not one of the. I mean I don't think academia is for everybody, and I think it's important for people to take a chance and, you know, either just go for it and commit or go for it and not commit and follow the flow and go, you know, leave and then come back or leave and don't come back. <clears throat> and I think all of those things are absolutely fine. But no, I always felt like you did the right thing because it was what you were wanting to do. And your work was really interesting. And I liked that it had other languages in it and interesting, like, I mean, just formatting and stuff. And I think that's indicative of who you are as a person anyway. Overly complicated and unnecessary. No. <laughs> no, I'm just, no. I'm being, being self-deprecating. Yeah. I appreciate it. No. Um, I never did get back to the, uh, the Wanderer Usher cut up uh, that I, I yeah. compiled, but it's still, I've still got it. And I've been meaning to return to it as soon as I get some way of uh, putting books out. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, one of the two of the works that we focused on was The Wanderer, the, the very old uh, work of literature and uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. Mm -hmm. And I think I've done cut ups before on this program and kind of dissected them in the weird obtuse way that you can. But that one was uh, apocryphal 
and a little frightening and uh, <laughs> uh, very interesting, a really interesting combination that was very deep and had a lot of context to it. So maybe one day I'll do an eight hour podcast uh, examining that and going into it. But yeah, I'm looking at the most adorable, sweet little kitten. I've yeah. ever seen in my whole life. And she's full grown. She's just really tiny. Oh my god! I know. Oh, you're so little, and you've got a mustache. She's got a mustache. Her name is Bead, as in the venerable Bead, like Anglo-Saxon. I know. My other cat's name is Pushkin, and he's he's a giant orange tabby, who is her uh, brother from the same litter. Hmm. And they look nothing alike, but they're very sweet to each other. And she's probably trying to figure out where the hell he is. That's just darling. Yeah. So tell me where your where your background and fascination with the with all things medieval and more specifically the all literary things. Ooh, okay. First dance. All things medieval. Well, so this one it's it's I thought I was going to go into romantics in college until until I didn't. Can you explain oh. what that what that means for some of my uh less like literary listeners? Romantic literature um or Victorian literature. Uh, I don't know. I really liked Byron. <laughs> and anyway. What is what is that what is that uh, genre about, I guess? Well, so you talked about Fall of the House of Usher. I think that was mostly like the gothic romantic was really what I got into. Mm -hmm. um, what are the characteristics, and, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm asking. Ooh, oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. So <laughs> I do like... Uh, so, for example, the fall of the House of Usher, right? If you're getting into the gothic romantic stuff, you get, there's like a haunted house, right? But not a haunted house like we think of them today that we can go visit. But there's always this, it's it's always storming. It's always gloomy. But there's a lot of, I mean, and usually there's like a dead person that comes back to life or something, you know, um, things like that. But, and I'll probably do a terrible job explaining it, which is why I didn't go into the romantic so <laughs> i just really liked reading them um well it was very i guess but, it's like very aesthetic and like it's very sure. imp uh, about the impression that whoever is going through it, it, it the impression that all these the events or whatever makes upon them in a way oh yeah i might be wrong yeah and and the thing is with the with the kind of dark romantic time period is that it it looks to the medieval period a lot in terms of things might be set in castles and they might have creepy suits of armors and they, they you know, romanticized the um, Middle Ages so much. So a lot of that comes through. Um, and I could say that that's where my fascination with medievalism and medieval studies began, but it's definitely not. Um, <clears throat> I did not grow up in the United States Right, so, I mean, kind of, but I was born in Kentucky, lived there till I was like eight, and then my parents worked overseas, um, and I, the, I, you know, moved with them, me and my sister. We lived um, in Moscow, Russia, for like eight years, uh, from the time I was like nine until I was like 17 or whatever, um, and we got to travel a lot because the business, the company that my parents worked for... Um, and when you live in Russia, you have to leave the country every either 90 days or once a year or just whatever the government's feeling at that time um, to renew your visa. So the company basically had to pay for us to leave the country every however often the government wanted us to leave it to renew the visa. 
Um, so we would go to Prague and we would go to Germany. We'd go to, uh, wherever, just take the train. And, um, I, especially in Prague, especially in the Czech Republic, I was fascinated with the castles, with the things, just, just everything being cobblestones, everything being so old. Um, and I, as a little kid, I got to like try on a suit of armor somewhere, you know, very touristy or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it just stuck. It clearly stuck. You know, uh, I have a knife, a very small, some of them very cheap, but medieval style, like knives and dagger collection. Um, which makes me sound weird, I think. Um, or like makes me sound like I have a lot of money, I, you know, but it's not, that's just a, not true. <laughs> These, you know, things from my, my youth. And, uh, it was a very fortunate, wonderful, interesting, weird, sometimes scary, but awesome youth to have. But, um, but yeah, I just, uh, spending so much time in Europe, I got really into medieval stuff and eventually you go back to the source. Yeah. Eventually it just came around and, uh, I still really love it. Obviously, like I said before, so it'll always be something. And I think like when I write creative works there, they're definitely, I write, I always write about like place, you know, and, and so I write more about, I think Southern stuff now, but I definitely still write about things that are medieval-esque, <laughs> just places because medieval things still exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like I can write about modern day Scotland in my time doing a master's degree in Edinburgh and it still feel like I'm writing about, you know, aspects of the middle ages because of the description of the buildings and things. So it's kind of a nice mixture of a bunch of different stuff. Yeah. So interesting. So, uh, before we get too, too deep in, uh, I want to get to screen door and what you're, what you've been doing. We can fill the gaps in, in mm-hmm. between, but, uh, but catch me up on that. And cause you've, it, it's, it's, it's a thing out in the world. Yeah. yeah it's happening. Loose. Um, yes. And it's about to be even more loose. Um, our first issue comes out March 1st. So just a month away. Um, yeah, so this past summer, so I'd been at my new shiny office job for about a year, and uh, I, I was enjoying the financial stability, but getting ever more restless <laughs> with the whole cubicle thing, and I work with really great people, so that helps, and that's the only way, you know, that you can stay at a job, I think, is with good people, but um, yeah, I was just, I was like, man, I really, I am just too, I... I have too much literary stuff going on in my head to really just not pay attention to it. And yeah, so I was getting restless about that and needing a a literary outlet, but also not wanting it to just be an outlet uh, for me. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start looking into like maybe applying to be uh, an editor at some different magazines or something and see where that goes. Because I had done some poetry editing for an independent magazine before, like a, a, lit, a lit magazine before, and I enjoyed it, and uh, I didn't do it for very long, but I did enjoy it, so I was like, okay, I, that would be a thing that I could do, and I was like, okay, well, 
I would like to do something maybe with a queer magazine because I identify as queer, right? So I started trying to find something in the South that focused on queer literature. And I just didn't really find anything. There's a little bit more now than there was even just the past summer when I was trying to find something, which is great. Um, But at that time, I was like, there's just, there's nothing. So I just decided to start it myself. And uh, I was sitting on the couch in there with my friend, Hannah Connor. She's lovely. She's one of my main editors with me. And um, I was just like, Hannah, like, we should do... Well, at first we were like, let's do a podcast. Let's do something, you know. And and I was like, I don't know all that much about podcasts. And I was like, well, I've been thinking about doing a a literary magazine or something. And um, she says, oh, that's such a great idea. So she works at at the Hoover Library and... I know she's t- she is an English, uh, has taken a lot of English classes at Montebello, and uh, so that's very much in her realm, and she loves editing work and stuff. So I was like, oh, well, why don't we start a lit magazine and for, like, Southern queer stuff? And she's like, oh, my God, that's such a good idea. Let's do it. Um, came up with a name, and then uh, I think the we- I started making the website two weeks later. It took a while, you know, because websites take a while, but, um, yeah, I made it myself and just went from there. So we just, I mean, the, the idea is just to publish things that are created by Southern queer individuals. And, uh, so far so good. I mean, we've just, we asked people to indicate in the little cover letter when you submit to indicate that they've read the guidelines and that they know this is for people who are identify both as Southern and queer so that we aren't just publishing random, random, uh, people from like anywhere in the world and passing it off as Southern queerness. So we were pretty meticulous in our making sure we would just kind of, we started declining anything that didn't have in the cover letter that specified like yes I read the guidelines yes I identify as southern and queer to to make sure but yeah um we've gotten almost a hundred submissions so far which so is I imagine pretty... those are closed for now um well we're so they're not because we're just leaving it open year-round okay um but we're only publishing quarterly we we will probably do closed ones closed callings if we start doing like special issues, like with this particular theme or whatever, but we figured right now Southern and queer is kind of like, it's uh sort of narrowed down enough. We didn't need a specific theme for the, for the issue, you know? Um, but eventually, you know, we might do close calls, but now it's just open year round, keep submitting. And when we run out of room for one issue, we'll start reading for the next issue. Right. Basically. So, yeah. Um, so can you describe a typical, what the typical issue is like? Well, the first one comes out March. So right now we've gotten like, we're so I'm putting together the issue, the first issue right now, and it's got a lot of poetry in it and a few short stories. And cause we really only do four genres right now flash fiction, poetry, short stories, and graphic narratives or comics, just um, anything that has like a narrative component to it. And uh, we, I don't even think we got any graphic narrative submissions, which 
which I was a little disappointed with. But uh, I would reach out to Wes Gregg. There's a lot of uh, really great uh, comic art going on, and I think there's one uh, called Cash that has been released like through Dead Drops, mm-hmm. and it's synonymous. Yeah. Um, so I would, if you're into Sanctum, if you're into uh, to comics or or graphic literature or whatever this Cash thing turns out to be. Uh, there's one that already is sold out, but the next one is coming very soon. And, but, uh, go down to Sanctum Tattoos and Comics and read yes. stuff. Yes. yes. They really are great. And one of my editors, Hannah Hurley, is actually working there right now. Yeah. Um, she's, yes, she's editing with us. Mm-hmm. I'm friends with her as well. Yes. She's wonderful. Um, and I know she's using that to work on her grad school stuff. Um, cause she's writing, uh, about graphic narratives there. So Emmanuel. So that's super exciting. Yes, I have a lot of talented people on my team. Yeah, how many are you? So we are eight editors, one research assistant, and one kind of business manager. Social media does some graphic design, helps us print some stuff, that kind of person. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, speaking of graphic designers, my sister is the one who actually made the logo for us, which I really enjoy. Um, she's a great graphic designer, and so I'm super Super fortunate there to be surrounded by talented people and to have talented people um, at my disposal. Yeah, I've had the same blessing. It's it's quite an amazing thing when you, when you trust people and they trust you in an operation. Yeah. It's, it's pretty magic. And collaborations and just... And yeah, and just, I think Birmingham... God, Birmingham has so much of that going on right now. Yeah, so that's exciting to be a part of. I was never sure if I wanted to stay in Birmingham, but, or in this area, stay, come back to whatever, you know, I've sort of come and gone and come and all over the place. And, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with Birmingham right now. <laughs> I, lo- I love it here. It has been harrowing, mm. but, uh, but I had the same thought. Like, I don't know if, if I have a future here, like, I don't know if this is, you know, if it's worth it to stay here or if whatever, but there is potential to build things here and there is a need if you can do it correctly that can be filled. And that's why people would want to stay is because there are things here and somebody's got to make that cannonball happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of different types of people need to stay here and make that cannonball happen. Right. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's the thing. Yeah. I'm currently looking for, management um just staff on my end and i'm really having to get into conservative circles and financial circles and like uh meet completely different and like tech and you know uh you know designer type people like personality types very different than mine and it's fascinating it's it's kind of difficult to navigate but i enjoy i enjoy the exposure yes i'm Mm -hmm. glad it's exposure absolutely and that's interesting that you said about getting into the more into conservative places mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so question for you, podcasting and things financially, like, do you look for grants and stuff like that? Do you, do you reach out for? Well, not, not currently. Um, I'm working toward uh, putting together a physical location, like mm-hmm. a central office for yeah. all of the people that are involved. Cause this show that we're doing is, the propaganda arm of my whole organization, which is made up of a bunch of different podcasts that I work on, you know, uh, Top Shelf Burlesque, The Dizzy, My Act, yeah. um, and, and yeah. several other people that are becoming involved. And I, I am working on 
mushing it like clay into the form of a multimedia company that can put artists to work and use the art as an investment in the creative people that are, are in our group and then the city, like good for us and then good for ours and then good for everyone. Yeah. You know, and, and putting money to very precise work to do that and using the art as, uh, as an invest, uh, using the products of the art as investors mm-hmm. unto them, unto itself, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. But that requires running a business properly and having, um, having really just a personality set and skills that I don't have. So a good conservative manager that can handle, that can drive a ship in a direction mm-hmm. at high efficiency. And that that is very necessary. And I would be the counterpart that would take the ship in new directions as it has to go. Sure. You know, and we need each other that way. And that could be extrapolated into any kind of venture. Yeah. Like we need both strategies at society. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. And I'm not great with money and they are. So. I'm not a conservative person because my personality is not, uh, I, I have a liberal personality. Uh, they're not competing things. They're complementary strategies at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, cause liberals can like really, really great liberals can start businesses, but, uh, really great conservatives can run businesses <laughs> well, you know? Yeah. And it's great if you can be a kind of person that has both of those things inside of you, but that'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. Sign me up. (laughs) Where do I buy one? (laughs) Yeah, I want a conservative vitamin to take today. Yes. (laughs) Spooky. That's that. Yeah, that that sounds terrifying. (laughs) That Huxley dog in you again. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I learned I learned a ton from you, and it was a great experience. Like being being in academia for as long as I was. it's it's a weird thing of of looking back and knowing that I wouldn't be here where I, you know, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't come from there, you know. Absolutely. But then we can all see how we could have spent our time uh, a little differently and made more of it or whatever. Yeah, that happens, but well, nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. What was, what was your opinion of of the academia thing while you're in it? Like I know you you, you spoke about uh, your relationship with teaching, but with the institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you're not an employee of them. Oh, yeah. Only for comfortable would, talking about it. Yeah. No, I mean, I would say it regardless. <laughs> it's not like I'd be losing a really well-paying job or anything. if I <laughs> No. Boy, 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 boy. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, oh, so it's such, it's, it's weird because I think that a lot of universities do so many things well. And a lot of them really just... <sighs> you know, act very just straight up capitalistic and like a big business. And it's so frustrating. Um, And I get that, like, again, aspects of university need to be conservative and aspects of university need to be liberal. And that goes with academia in general. And I think that sometimes that that works for some universities that they can balance that and it works and some universities can't. And, um, or some departments within universities can't, Can you, be more you know, specific? okay. Well, I th- just in general, the way adjunct work is, is terrible. Like that's not a particular department that's across, um, you know, academia in general. I mean, there are strikes, there are walkout days, there are, can you explain that? Um, since adjuncts get paid so fucking little. And that just means you're like part-time, like yes, you're not, sorry, um, yes. you're not, 
you're not an a employee full-time of the university you're like hired. you are no you're okay. an employee you're I was curious just if it was a... like a, an independent contractor no no thing. no you're okay. you're employed but it's just like part-time so imagine working somewhere <laughs> that will only let you work enough hours so that they don't have to give you the benefits right okay so that's yeah. the kind of thing um some places you can teach three classes without them having to give you benefits some places they can you can only teach two classes because if you taught one more they'd have to give you benefits and they won't do that as a part-time you know um professor so uh, it's you know that's one aspect of academia that is totally just a giant failure clusterfuck um, you think that's a money thing oh oh yeah yeah i mean like i mean giving benefits to people takes a whole lot of money so they um for one, they just don't pay you well at all. Like if you're teaching, so four classes, a full load, if you're teaching four classes, when I was teaching four classes at two different universities, I was making 13,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Like what? Yeah. What? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's that. And then there's not, um, you know, not giving you enough classes to where they have to give you benefits. Right. And that's another kick. Um, now, do you think, because the, 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 lo the logical question that that infers is, the, 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 to give the benefit of the doubt, I guess, to the situation is, uh, the university has enough students and not enough faculty so that the faculty would have to, basically, they would have to spread the faculty thin to have enough people to teach everything in, in the broadest capacity that they need. I mean, yeah, and so, well... Okay, that might so not be the case, but that's my, that's what... That's a, a counter that I would think is that maybe they can't afford to, and that might not be. Yeah, you know. I think some. De so, and now this is different again, department to department. Right. So different think, departments are allocated differently. Yeah, I mean, they can spend more money on their adjuncts than other departments can. Okay. Um. So that's a thing. In any of the like arts departments, so the English department is obviously the one I'm more familiar with than any of the other ones. Um. But obviously art or history or anything that's not business, <laughs> um, really. The humanities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The humanities, yeah, the adjuncts are going to make a whole lot less than, than in other departments. Um, and I think it's really weird, for whatever reasons they do this, to have, like, I think that we're good, like, but especially if there's not a lot of training, um opportunities and because don't worry, I'm not this is not at all saying that adjuncts aren't qualified to teach their the classes they're teaching because they definitely are um in a lot of ways and they're very innovative and passionate and they we we did you know we do a great job with our students I think but it's frustrating I think in a lot of ways to know like I so I had a I have a master's degree I don't have a PhD um I think teaching composition classes is really, really challenging. And it's, so that's so English 101, English 102. And you'll get what you pay for. Perhaps. Yeah. That might be, well. You would I like, I think, I think I liked the idea of you're going to pay the same amount to be taught by a P, someone who has a PhD and someone who has a master's and again oh, that's mean, not i mean from the university to the teacher's perspective like if you if you really would pour money in that who knows what you could do like who knows what kind of writers you could create or like what how effective that could be yeah you know 
Yeah, and I think, and then from the, the from the student perspective, it's it's just it's like it's inconsistent. I think, um, and interesting. A lot of the full time faculty PhD people don't want to teach composition classes, which is fine. They're hard to teach, and everyone has to take them. Is the thing they're you know they're mm-hmm. the required classes. You cannot graduate college without taking. Or clapping out of at least, you know, 101 and 102 English classes. You have to have them. Right. You have to know how to write an essay. Yeah. You have to know how to put together articulate, cohesive arguments. Like, you are going to use that in every single class. <laughs> so, they're arguably the most important classes you're going to take in terms of learning how to communicate um, and create arguments and productive writing productive writing but uh i don't know they're the ones that are sort of thrown away a lot of the times like which is odd because it's possible it's it's possibly the closest that you can get to to what college maybe perhaps should be like i was speaking to before like instead of specialization that binds you to like i'm i'm written into the specialized unit because Mm -hmm. of this document and now if i'm not specialized in just that i can't work because I'm not qualified under that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So instead of maybe that, it it might ideally be closer to preparing you how to how to te- teaching you history and teaching you the classics and teaching you like the the foundation of human knowledge in our uh, uh, unprecedented capacity to to codify it and put it together and, and we've got all of this knowledge and we're not really, it's kind of scattershot what we're doing with it. Yeah. So we don't have a whole, like no one, it's shocking that everyone goes through school and very, very few people come out the other side of schooling at period, like anywhere with a full understanding of human history and psychology. Like you don't get that, but you could, but a ton of time is wasted just in doing this, that, or the other thing. And, and maybe the, the unit that we were, and not just higher education, like you obviously need specialized, it's like specialization to make doctors and like engineers yeah, and lawyers sure. and stuff like that. But, but like we spend all of grade school grinding people in this weird way um, and kind of processing them through where we could be teaching them how to think Oh yeah, and, and I mean, like the the whole grade school thing create is their talent. Like, it's amazing how work school is, but it's interesting that English is underfunded because that's the closest you get to learning how to think well. Exactly, yeah. that's very yeah. frustrating. And in like growing growing up, you know, in grade school and in high school and stuff, you you, I feel like you're taught a lot more in a lot of ways. Not obviously, there are like really great schools out there who don't do this as much but teaching to the standardized test teaching you know we will hear that all the time and it's it's a big argument but it's an argument for a reason because it's stupid you know to do that right. in a lot of ways some, and it's, some and it's ways it's worse. not but god most of the time really doesn't help with the whole critical thinking thing also i'm not great at standardized test taking so i uh like to insult it as much as possible <clears throat> but you know and, and in high Has school it- you're kind of geared toward that and then college comes and a lot of the classes especially in the humanities are just like they want you to think openly and think critically and think all these things and you're like but wait what's so what's gonna be on the test it's like no like (laughs) come on come on think i'm not gonna just give you bullet points and spoon feed you anymore so and i think that's good it's just the whole adjunct thing is interesting because like i came i came out of it just like having fresh out of a master's degree 
and being like, and I had just, you know, like I had been so long since I'd had composition or taught composition and, and I was like super passionate about the things I had just learned. So it was really hard just like kind of trying to like tame it down and teach the basics when I had just come out of like a specialization thing, you know, and wanting to like really get into my own subject matter. But that was a good exercise for me, I think. But it is one of those things I think, um, composition is just a really tricky, tricky thing to teach. And I think a lot of the adjuncts I know have done a really, really good job with that. Um, it just makes it harder to do when you get paid so little and you want to be super passionate and you want to give all your time and meet students outside of class and do everything that the PhD professors do. Um, but you, I mean, you just like, you by getting paid so little like you can't spend your whole like you have to work another part-time job so you can't <laughs> give as much unless in a lot of cases this is when adjuncting i think works pretty well is if you have a significant other um or someone else in your life that helps support you financially right. and you can do it as a part-time job is that what and it's give kind of a designed lot more for? i don't know i don't mean i don't know what it's designed yeah, for i, I think there's no I think it's designed to save universities money. That's really kind of the bottom line there. Um, it's one of those administrative words. Adjunct. Yeah. You mm. know, I don't think I'd ever <laughs> thought of it or used it until I became one and then was like throwing it around all the time. And people were like, what What word is that? What are you saying? Yeah, I got it. I got adjuncted uh, down the street the other day, but I can't really tell you about that. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, well, interesting. That, that. I have a lot of mixed feelings about it, clearly. Yeah. Well, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing because it's a complicated problem. Yeah, Um, it is. I do want to ask though, uh, because just because someone mentioned it to me that, that a lot of, what did he say? Um, there, there's a, there's a frightening majority of, or there's a frightening percentage of, um, college professors that are Marxists and they would be capitalists if they were paid better. I think was the joke. Um, was did, were there? Is was that your experience? No. Uh, were there a bunch of Marxists in the in the oh, humanities Marxist. department? I'm just I mean, interested. Sure, I guessed um, people. I pe- I think people more so maybe not call themselves straight up Marxists, but identify more in the terms in the along the lines of like social, um, like a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I met a lot of people who were just like, I'm straight I'm up Marxist, Marxist yeah. or straight up like I'm a communist yeah. or whatever. Um, there are some in Montevallo for sure, but I was just curious about the Sure, the there are department. some, but I don't think they're in the majority. And But the I think the majority, especially in the humanities, are very much aligned with social, uh, I keep saying it backwards, democratic socialism, mm-hmm. um, socialism, socialism more so than that's just those are the terms um i heard a lot of bernie supporters in the humanities department mm-hmm. you know um i was so, just curious yeah and i have interesting ideas i think or i don't know if they're interesting i have confused and mixed feelings about ideas of communism and things like that as well communism coming back or whatever just because i spend so much time in russia growing up in very much post-communist russia right so i don't know think I have a lot of mixed feelings about that as well 
that's a it's a large bag that we could open but i think we're mm-hmm. we're reaching an hour and this yeah. has been a, a really great conversation yeah we can talk for a little while if you like i was i was just having the thought of maybe because i've had a few i've had a few people on a couple of times but more often than that i've had uh i've had people like you know repeat guests mm-hmm. but more often than that i've had uh people who who are good at things that I like bringing attention to, like, I like having this specific conversation because not a lot of people get to hear about, like, the ins and outs of college employment or whatever that, you know, it's a specific topic. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to put my expert guests to work at some point. (laughs) Um, So uh, I would like to maybe bring you back uh, a few months from now and, you know, talk talk some more, but maybe spend uh, an extended period of time doing what you do well. Um, using your skill for the show, so to speak, you know. Okay. Yeah. Which which skill? <laughs> I'm uh, just the, kidding. <laughs> you know, knife uh, throwing. No. Yeah, I would like to do some medieval uh, investigation, perhaps, or uh, sure, or you know, you you speak some uh, some oh, old English. Yeah, I, I do. I have it tattooed on my arm from the poem "The Wanderer." Actually. Yeah. Yeah, I got to work with some of those manuscripts while I was in my master's because the national library of Scotland was down the street and it had a bunch of 14th, 13th century manuscripts in it that you could request. To... Just, anyway. Yeah. Tell, tell me, let's close on that. Tell me, tell me about that time. <laughs> oh, it was great. Um, I loved living in Edinburgh for like a year and a half, almost two years. And, uh, God, I wouldn't change that for anything. Maybe would have stayed longer if I could have not. Maybe I tried. I tried really hard <laughs> to stay, but you know, the whole student visa thing, it ran up and I had to leave. But, uh, yeah, God, no, it's a great school. It looks like a freaking castle, which, you know, uh, I lived literally less than three minutes from an actual castle. Um, I lived so downtown Edinburgh and it's like this hill and at the top of the hill is this giant Edinburgh castle. Like if you just type in the word Edinburgh, you know, this is what comes up on Google. And, uh, I lived like directly underneath it. So it's just stupid how cool it was. Um, so yeah. And I, I fell in love with this wonderful woman while I was there, which was cool. Um, I mean like heartbreaking at the end, but cool. And was just this overall kind of magical experience. Grad school was hard. Like I did the work and it was difficult and but I, I, I loved it. I loved studying medieval literature in a city that looked like that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was, you just, I don't know. I loved the weather. I loved how green everything was. I loved how easy it was to travel places. And my friends that I made there are just some of the closest friends I still have. Um, going to one of their weddings next month up in Kansas City, so... That's exciting. Like just, you know, whole friends for life thing. Um, Well, if you're hearing this in Scotland, uh, what do they say? Hi. Hey. You know. Yeah. Slanchava. Okay. (laughs) Cheers. No. uh, Yeah. God. No. Edinburgh is great. We do have listeners in Moscow. (gasps) Really? Yeah. Idaho or Russia? Russia. (laughs) I did not know it was Moscow, Idaho. (laughs) Strange. I know. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know really until someone mentioned it to me at some point was they're, they're kind of trying to make a joke. Yeah. There is a Hollywood, Alabama, which might even be stranger. 
Yeah, there's an Inverness too. Inverness, Scotland, Inverness, mm-hmm. Alabama, right down the road, which always trips me up a little <laughs> to think of. Maybe we'll find our own Loch Ness monster yeah. up there. Um, but no, yeah, that was a really, it was a really lovely time. And uh, I've been back and want to keep going back. Um, like I mentioned, I write whenever I write my stuff, or, you know, it's place and identity and place and makes sense because I've moved around a lot and I've lived in a lot of different places and speak some languages and it's just things that are always going around in my head. You're kind of always constantly missing somewhere, but really loving the place you're at at the same time. That's, and I think that's taken, it takes a long time to get to there. Yeah. And that's what, (laughs) that's what the prompt was. That's what I wrote about for your Mm -hmm. class was that it was about, it was a home you know, mm-hmm. what is home, the, 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 whatever, however you want to take your definition of home to an, to an extent, take it, you know? Yeah. And that was something that I had not learned yet. And I was thinking about that today was you eventually have to cultivate. Oh yeah. You know, you have to cultivate your home. <laughs> you have to make it what you want it, I guess. Yeah. Which ironically is the, uh, responsibility part of the right to property. <laughs> 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 was that you're entrusted to cultivate what you what you have yeah yeah and if you don't the mob comes and takes your thumb yeah <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i've never really thought about it like that but yes that makes perfect sense but yeah no i remember many times like wanting to leave the south um and wonder yeah and leave leave the south and just I don't know, but at some point it didn't become, it, it became less of a, a leaving and more of a going where a going, but never actually leaving the South. Like I was just taking that shit everywhere with me, especially when I lived in Scotland, feeling very proud of being from Alabama yeah, and being able to share with people like stories from Montevallo. And my friends there were just like, why do you live in Alabama? Like, why? You know, and I was, I was like friends that these were acquaintances, yeah. you know, that I didn't really keep up with that much. But, you know, changing some minds, being like, yeah, we're not like what you really buy into all these stereotypes. Like, yes, it exists. It really does. There's a lot of crazy racism and homophobia here. Like, oh, my God. But there's also a whole lot of pockets and connected pockets of people who are very just themselves and proud of it and trying to merge the ideas of who they are with where they are and not have to separate those identities, which is what Screen Door Review is all about, you know, Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it with just ideas of queerness, you know, specifically. You don't, you can be gay and Southern, you know. And literary. And literary and. And a magazine if you choose to identify that way. Yeah. All at the same time. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) No, so what are your, uh, give yeah. us, give us information. Where can we find, uh, where can we keep, keep up with stuff? Where will it be obvious to us yeah. uh, when you release it? So yes, it'll be, well, for one, it'll be super obvious because we're having a really big launch event party at Disco. Mm-hmm. So Desert Island Supply Company, uh, super cool place. Check out their mission. They're great. Um, I think it's Disco uh, dot com. But anyway look up desert islands like they're wonderful and so we're gonna have par- we're gonna have a party there there's gonna be readings from the issue there's gonna be live music it's gonna be there's gonna be an art installations it's gonna be an art exhibit for my photographer sarah dunn she's wonderful 
And uh, so she does all the photography for the website and for whatever else we do when we do events and things. And then John Woolley, um, he works. He's the art director at Revelator and at Rufter as well. He's wonderful, and he's designing the cover. So it's, it's only, it's a print, I mean, it's not in print, our magazine's online, um, but we're going to have a cover for each issue, it just makes sense. So he's designing the first cover, really excited about it. Uh, Revelator is catering the, the event, and um, they're going to make coffee, some light refreshments, some pastries or something. I'm going to buy a bunch of wine and probably PBR and um, Just literary. <laughs> have that uh, and um, or whatever people want to bring, you know, but it'll be a time for community dialogue. We're going to have these booths set up where you can, there'll be like a prompt and you have to go in with a stranger in. It's not, a, it's like a sheet, you know, hanging up. You'll be able to talk to another stranger. You'll be encouraged to talk to strangers about these prompts and just get to know people in your community more. And there'll be a few community leaders uh, of the queer world that'll talk. I'll talk. I'll say some things. You know who's speaking? Um, not 100% sure yet, but I'm pretty sure somebody from Magic City Acceptance Center is going to be there and things of that sort. All like all the music, all the art, all the everything we do there will be presented and created by individuals who identify as Southern and queer. Mm -hmm. So, but it's open and free to anybody who wants to come, obviously. That's grand. Do you want to close by reading what's on your arm? Oh, sure. So (laughs) I got super excited. I get so excited when people ask me what is on my arm. Um, In, so it's in old English. It's from the poem, the wanderer. And in, in old English, it says, which means how time has disappeared under the helmet of night as if she never existed. Virile corpses and ridiculous notions from a Bangkok floor. Blang Pho Dwang wore T-shades with his scarlet and orange monk robes. He was a man of the 80s, a real modern hip cat as I like to remember him. The placard at his feet gave his death date in 1987, and I would like to believe that a man with such foresight and style as he would have died with the square black lenses already on his face before his eyeballs dried and fell back into his skull and he was displayed to the public in the Wat Kudaran temple on the southern side of Bangkok. I spend so much of my time around people simply observing that I tend to forget that to anyone outside of myself, I am the public also. A nasal American woman leaned over the rope partition to take a photo of the shrine and loudly mused to her husband. Ah, Alfred, I wonder if his nads are still attached. Her husband's skull was flat in the front, long and narrow with a sloping nose, but only half the length of his face. He and his face were dangling over a glass display case. 
When she called him again, he jerked around, and his face followed. Luang Pho Duang used to be the abbot of Wat Kunu Ram before he became its draw for the tourists. According to word around the temple, he decided shortly after his 50th birthday that his time to leave this life was drawing near, and after abstaining from eating, speaking, and drinking for seven days, he died in lotus position with strict instructions that should his body not decompose, he would be set up for display on the altar of the temple. I had assumed him to be one of the self-mummifying monks of a lesser-known Buddhist sect, whose most devoted spend a period of ten years conditioning their earthly vessels to be preserved after their souls have moved on. When sent on assignment to Bangkok, I made a point to see the dried old lad, because I had been so interested in these Sokushinbutsu monks, as they were called. This made me wonder how the pair of Americans that were making such a scene before me had come to find the place. Perhaps they too knew no one in the happening quarter of Bangkok, and simply searched ten most offbeat sites on the internet. Alfred had a skewed sensibility about him. I can usually smell that on people if I have a good vantage point on them. Luckily, the skewed ones had a way of making the scene without knowing it. The glass display he had been so enthralled with was littered with tiny, reclining, concubine jade figurines. I appreciate a guy who can appreciate good erotic religious sculpture. My purpose for ducking into the temple from the busy street was not so noble as spiritual curiosity. I had already been to Wat Kumaran my first few hours in the city and paid my respects and made my offerings. For the first time, I used the sacred place to ditch the handlers I'd been slagging along with through half of Asia. In the market district a few blocks away, I had made my play for divine freedom. There were four of them sent on this excursion with me, and I was unsure of their purpose apart from distracting me on all fronts from the task that most occupied me in those formative years, finding free kicks in weird spots. Lo, the oddities drop from the fire hazard escapes and lean casually from the alleys of cities like Bangkok, and I had to blow off my charges that had been put in charge of me before the weirdness was going to sneak over and find me itself. Alfred's wife accosted me outside the temple where I was quietly adding to the pollution with my cigarette. I felt like a prophet. I'm Lynn, are you American? That's me. Weird stuff in there, huh? She followed her question with a bleat-like exclamation in the direction of her husband who dawdled out of the temple. Uh, yeah, they, uh, just hang out in there. He spoke with the weight of someone who was used to being interrupted. He made little statements intended more for himself than for anyone around him. I guess their age is to be between 50 and 60. I also guess that he probably spent a lot of his time back home taking long walks around the neighborhood, or standing in his backyard staring at the trees, and that she often wondered aloud why he did so, and writing it off as one of the quirks of advancing age. I did not verify my suspicions, for I am no scientist. We three began walking westward with no obvious reason why we walked that way or why we stayed together. Lynn started her sentences slow and high-pitched, and gradually sped up her words until she lost herself in whole half-hours of uninterrupted soliloquy, delivered by the end in scratchy, airless nasality. She walked briskly ahead, and Alfred dropped back with me and silently bummed a cigarette from me. He smoked it in the surreptitious way of a decades-long back porch sneaker, despite his lady's considerable distraction. Habits isolated. He would also sneak in his own observations as we passed market stalls and sundry windows. His sallow face was draped with dramatically thin bangs and two simple columns intersecting his cheekbones. There was little hair on his head otherwise, except for two eight-inch bangs, which he repeatedly parted away from his little black eyes. 
His eyes themselves were seemingly designed for the purpose of undercover watching, so black that I had difficulty following his gaze as it moved about on the building. It was actually miraculous that we could hold a conversation at all above the noise of the market, and also as I had little reference in his inflection or eyes to tell what he was speaking of. We had passed a half dozen stalls with hanging chickens when Alfred stopped me in my gate. There was no mistaking that he intended to say something important. His dry lips parted, and a barely discernible squeak began in the back of his throat. Veins erupted from his neck and forehead, and his black eyes took on a blue, iridescent shade that seemed to emanate from deep within his skull. The creaking continued, and he grabbed my arm to steady himself. When he made contact, all other sound in my ears died away. The aural landscape swam around my head, and only a far-off alto solo that was his wife's prattling accompanied his rattling voice. I don't believe that I will ever be sure if he made the sounds himself, or if my mind painted them in words amongst the haze of sound. He fell like a twisted century-old maple tree and sounded like it too. Illusion crept upon me as I watched his elongated vessel cast a pencil-thin shadow on the dusty face. The alto voice resembled Ornette Coleman's horn, but Lynn did not recognize the holiness of her call. I recall only now that we had no parting words. I backed away in slow motion, but save for the confusion, I am surprised that no one brought me to explain why I fled the scene of a demise. I had recognized something in Alfred's eyes when I had watched him kneel at the altar and brought Kuhn around. He fixed his gaze on lying Fauteuil in his dark, dusty shades, and I knew that he grasped fundamental truth. I suspected it was this. Luang for Duang had decided that his time had come to depart, and checked out in a pristine way, and now thirty years their time, his remaining physical carriage was preserved, evident to those who found themselves in this weird corner of the world. The body is a moving coral leaf that allows our spiritual selves to navigate this world. When the sights are seen and related and contemplated, and when the faculties we are given to see and describe and relate are kissed away by billions of seconds, we find a ghostly message coming to us from the ether. It is a voice that we cannot hear, saying words that we cannot say in any language. It beckons us to the white floor. We are called to an expansive, majestic mahogany floor with no walls and no doors and no central air. When this call is felt, it requires no answer. Time that remains, we long to pass on the exalted, quieting, edifying truth. Zoang Fo Duang and Alfred succeeded in what I can only guess was their transmission.
you're on the road, I thought I would do some uh, some highway reminiscing for this part of the show that called for personal stories and, and reminiscing. A lot of this episode comes from Montevallo time. The archive material that you heard earlier was Bangkok. Uh, what was the actual ridiculous notions, virile corpses and ridiculous notions from a Bangkok floor was the name of a story that I wrote for uh, Alicia's class. And, uh, and that was kind of based off of a, a, a thought that I had developed in an essay for the same class about home that we kind of spoke on. And I, in that essay, I wrote about the, the transience of body and the, the proper cultivation and manipulation of, of body as a mode of being um, that can, that has to both be utilized well within the context of whatever your body happens to be and also, uh, and also served kind of to, to, uh, you, you can, you can manipulate your body to kind of hack it to do more than perhaps you thought it could. And a, a grounded example of this is, uh, is bodybuilding or just fitness. You can completely change your body by exercising in specific ways. And, and we don't know the upper potential of human capability as Wim Hof has shown, uh, and other people have, you know, there are extremes in the human capability, but on a more extreme example, uh, Genesis Prayer Peorage, the, the pandragine that is uh, Genesis Peorage and her late lover, uh, Lady J, her wife. And they, they I've, I've spoken about this briefly before, but they were, they were two people that conspired to, to represent one entity in, in two bodies, the pandragine in two, in two people uh, that, that represented one force. And so I touched on that. I, I wrote about how, how the, the body is, is a home for your state of being and you use the home to help cultivate the body and otherwise so or vice versa so uh so that was the essay that i think the name of the essay was home is a is a four-walled cheap suitcase and cheap suitcase was the term that genesis used to describe a body to begin with it's, it's a cheap suitcase and you can fill it with what you like and what you can do with it what you like and it's a thing that can be discarded, and you eventually do discard it when and when you you go off off somewhere else. So the the Bangkok piece is about someone witnessing a death in a in kind of a mystical setting, as part of a coincidental meeting and and all in a, a a highly highly charged situation, set of circumstances. And I wrote that while I was still a student and I recorded that album after I'd been out of school for about nine months I had gone down to Panama City where I have a, a little hideaway spot and stayed a week there abstaining from just about everything I, I worked myself back onto coffee unfortunately during that week um, and, and I noticed that the phone took over as well the more I let it uh, it started out as listening to productive things and, and hearing you know, the voices of the people that I was seeking to learn from at that time, but also a lot of other filler stuff and addiction that I've ever, uh, we've all basically resigned ourselves to, uh, but we might have to mitigate in the future soon. But I went down and, and I kept track of my dreams and from the same album that Bangkok sprang from was included on the songbook hypnosis set of music and sound and, uh, and words. 
I wrote Lesson of Two Dreams about a set of a set of dreams that I had uh, because I was coming off of THC for the week, and THC uh, either makes you forget dreams or or puts you out of a dream cycle. I don't I don't know exactly how the two work because we don't understand a ton about dreams, but THC interferes with dreams. So I was having these visit the, these vivid nighttime experiences, and. And, and I came back from that and, and recorded, finished the album and, and got it there. And I had friends involved in the album that I, you know, Jordan appeared on it, Rickerson from the Dizzy. And that was kind of early on in our friendship. And he, he called me and I recorded things for that. Um, Bobby Gill from Nuclear Milwaukee was around. I got, a, I got several voices. And one that was never recorded anywhere, but she, she pervaded through my friend Sig. I met her in philosophy and English classes while I was at Montevallo and I was only there I, I started attending in late 2000 in summer of 2013 I think and uh, after kind of a lost year and had had a semester with a fairly light course load I took writing classes French music theory philosophy um, practical things that I could use and I, I was there for a little under a year, a semester and a half or so. And I knew I knew Sig the whole time and, and we were close friends uh, that that weaved and bounced off each other fairly profoundly. And she she pervaded all of those times and I and, and affected my work. She helped design and craft the first albums that I put out under my name. She was there. And she was never included on any of the work. Uh, she she just wasn't interested necessarily in appearing. And, uh, and I hope she's well. I don't know if if she's hearing this in Huntsville, uh, up in northern spot. But yeah, if you're there, thanks for being around. Uh, when I was living in Montevallo, I was I was in a little spot. I, I lived with a couple of different people, friends that I knew before, new friends that I made, and. During the time I hosted shows, I started the Montevallo Music Podcast as I was trying to form a direction for myself musically in a, in a career sense. I'm trying to see, playing a lot at the Eclipse venue that is no longer there, Rip Ripperuni, um, and, and trying to trying to feel out where uh, where I was going to go. Kind of Take, still taking in a lot of information, still profoundly crazy, and exploring and pretty whacked out, but I hosted shows out of my apartment and played shows elsewhere in town and, and developed all the archive work that I dig up for you from time to time. Uh, I, I made an album called Scenic Favorites that has a teen addiction I've played before with a couple of things on it, and uh, and then Songbook Hypnoses and then MUNG, and that's my, that's my story. And a lot of a lot of bizarre things happened there. I've I've spoken before about my sitting under a bear bowl, listening to David Bowie's "Low" and compulsively cutting up text and completely losing my mind. Um, I I almost produced a a, a hardcore um, trap album that panned out into nothing. Uh, and a neighbor that was recording that uh, Kalira's greatest kept secret was going to be the name of the album that I got kind of strung into and then uh, 
so my, my neighbor was there and he left a bunch of furniture at our place, like a, a set of chairs and, a, and, a, and tables that we used for forever. And all, so all the furniture suddenly was leather and hardwood and he never came back for it. Uh, and, and then my first roommate moved out and I was left with his possessions and my neighbor's possessions. And someone moved in next to me that worked, uh, worked with me and helped me develop things. And we were close and, and it was just a, it was a bar, it was a bizarre time made up of pieces of all of the things that I had been collecting as I was doing my exploring. And now I'm, well, now it's, it's three thirty on a, on a Saturday night, on a, on a Friday night, a Saturday morning, I guess. And, uh, and I'm driving from Alabaster where I live, uh, maybe 40, 40 minutes South of Birmingham up to Birmingham where I'll be working to finish this episode all night. And then, uh, and then sleeping at some point up, up that way, crashing somewhere and continuing work tomorrow until I play Marty's tonight. When you hear this, all of my music gear and a box of clothes and you know, everything's in my car and this is kind of the way I exist now. And I never would have thought that before living in those times, but now I am sustaining myself off of the promises that I made to myself and to my close people and to other forces back then. I have to live up to those now. So that's my personal stories from, from my, uh, from my world. We're going to continue on. So the next thing you're going to hear is a bit of a thing that I'm working on, an in-situ, uh, mid-range, uh, halfway developed kind of thing. Uh, I named it File Caught a Flip. That's the name of the, of the track, and you're going to hear more about that at some point soon. I'm going to work it into something, and people that listen from time to time are going to hear, oh, I know, okay, I heard that before, all right. So there's that. File Caught a Flip. Enjoy. <laughs>
Recorded at a party for Pete in Montevallo, March 73. Pete Marcush, Brent Stouffer, Lee Waits, and myself. Cello, upright bass, drum, saxophone. Ish
final portion of our episode comes courtesy of our number one viewer of podcast things, Montevallo come Oakland raconteur, Joel Nelson, who not too far in the recent past demanded that I have two specific guests as soon as possible. And you've heard them before. We are graced in Birmingham by two immensely talented musicians, LaDonna Smith and Davey Williams. You've encountered them as part of mixed sets and otherwise with Flissinoy, particularly on the night of Friday the 13th at the Soft Rock Bungalow, if you look back in our history of episodes. I've heard your request, and I honor it forthwith. I've spoken to them the last we passed at our performance time at Art Town last Wednesday night, and they are coming your way in future days to speak of their accomplishments and ambitions. And we will share in our concerted joy the old wisdom of musicness. It is so, Joel Nelson, whoever you are. Our last recording of this evening is from Joel himself and his cohort Dylan Burchett, also of Oakland. This is submission talk from weeks ago, an improvisation called From a Pig to Mr. Pie. The night carries us forward and outward. Semper Paratus. Thank you for staying with us.